Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer Podcast, episode number 103 for Wednesday, July 29th, 2020. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. There are so many wonderful indie games out there, and so many of them are exploring topics of narrative, empathy, and things that we traditionally have not seen in mainstream media. But a lot of them still offer very traditional or binary choices as far as narrative goes. With one exception, a game that just came out called We Should Talk. It's a game I first became aware of a few years ago when former Polygamer guest Francesca Carletta Leon showed it to me, and it just came out for Steam and all major consoles. I'm very excited today to welcome to the Polygamer podcast the narrative designer of We Should Talk, Jordan Jones Brewster. Hello, Jordan. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so glad to have you. I enjoyed playing the game, and I know it's a small team, so the fact that any one of you could take the time out to talk to me, I really appreciate it. Congratulations on the recent launch. Thank you. It was, um, it doesn't, it hasn't hit me yet. It's not, still not real. It's been a week, but. <laughs> what will it take for it to feel real? I don't actually know. I think three months from now, when I'm opening my, uh, my Switch or my Steam account and I see a game that I made, I'll remember it. Oh, yeah. That's the thing that I did. And this isn't your first game. Have you worked on other titles before this one? So this is the first game that I am releasing out into the world. Um, I've made several games as a game design student at NYU when I was there. Uh, This being one of the games that started at NYU. But it's actually the first game that I'm currently releasing. I'm working on things now. uh, I contribute to writing for Insecure, the come-up game from Glow Up Games, and other things that I cannot talk about at the moment. But this is the first game that I've worked on that's kind of seeing the light of day and getting a mass release. Cool. Let's put this right up front. For those who are interested in those other projects, where do they find you online? You can go to twitter.com slash versified. That's V-E-R-S-I-P-H-I-E-D. Awesome. There will be a link to that in the show notes. So your most recent release, your biggest release to date, is We Should Talk I got it on the Switch. I've played it through a couple of times. Not everybody listening to the show has had that pleasure yet. So for those who haven't, what is We Should Talk? So We Should Talk is a short-form narrative game where we encourage players to think twice about the words that they choose. You, as a player, go into your favorite local bar, talk to a couple people in your bar while also texting your partner at home, and the things that you say between those people kind of determine the state of all of your relationships at the end of the night. It's about 20 minutes to 35 minutes long, And the crux of it is our sentence spinner mechanic, where you're, instead of uh, making specific dialogue choices like you would in a traditional narrative game, your dialogue choices are separated by parts of a sentence, where you're crafting each part of a sentence that's sometimes split into two or three parts and before you make your statement. There are a lot of different choices when you're spinning those sentences. How many different like combinations or permutations of this story are there? Is there a finite number that you've uh, calculated? It's so funny. I think about that a lot. And there's definitely numbers out there um, that change. You know, three months ago, I would have been able to tell you a number like in one conversation, there's 12,000 theoretical choices that you can make. Um, and then every time I add another choice or if there's like a patch or, you know, as a part of the Kickstarter that we ran for this game, we allowed some backers to, you know, customize a particular choice in the game, which adds a number of other potential choices as well. So I think. What I would say to that is that, um, you know, your average choice with like you, a sentence is split into three separate parts would have about 27 options there for your average choice. Some have a lot more, some have a little bit less, but generally speaking, every individual choice you have is that. And there are several, many ways that a particular conversation can go. And there are nine endings to the game. Wow. Because when you have 29 options or three to the third, each one of those 27 options can itself lead to another decision, which itself has 27 more options, right? Exactly. Uh, a lot of what we call uh, the process of writing for that game was often kind of puzzle design and just finding an uh, the right way to express a thought that many ways that 
grammatically makes sense every time. And even though you have those many, many options, the game also constrains you in some ways. Like this is not top down where you're walking around a bar and choosing who to interact with. The game guides you from one interaction directly to the other, both with patrons in the bar and with the people on your phone. So how many different people do you interact with in this game? So you talk to four people total in the game. There is your partner at home, Sam, who you talk to exclusively for through text messages. And once you enter the bar, you're greeted by Steph, the bartender. Um, During the conversation with Steph, you kind of have an option to talk to either this stranger that's kind of checking you out or a seemingly old friend that you used to come around the bar with. And those are, that's the extent to which you talk to anybody. All of the game is encompassed in those four people in those uh, multiple conversations. Now, the people in the bar, you only speak to once, while Sam is spoken to a number of times throughout the experience. And one of those nine endings takes about, what would you say, 10 to 20 minutes to get to? It, it depends on your play style. Uh, if you're the type of player that immediately chooses a choice the right when they see it, I, I'd say it'd be about 15 to 20 minutes. But if you're the type that kind of looks through all the options before making a choice, that might go from you know 20 to 35 minutes. So since we're talking about all these options, let's talk about what it means to be a narrative designer, which was your title in this game. I... You know, have not had a narrative designer on this show before, although I've spoken with several of them on PAX panels. In some capacities, I thought it meant primarily like writer, author, script producer. But in this case, you actually designed that sentence spinner dialogue system. So what does it mean to be a narrative designer? So um, with with We Should Talk specifically, um, I want to give credit to everybody on the team because the sentence spinner in its inception was a combined design effort of the entire team. Um, uh, when we started making this game for the NYU class. However, with, uh, with, to more specifically answer your question, and, you know, I saw someone on Twitter write this very well, and I wish I could remember their name so I could credit them. But, uh, what they said was, um, the difference between a writer and a narrative designer is that a writer tells a story and the narrative designer designs the way in which the story will be told. So with We Should Talk, um, I was the primary writer as well as narrative designer where writing the dialogue was a thing that I did, but I also chose the rules for that dialogue. I also worked to design the, what the do's and don'ts of what we could and could not write and the way that we would express these characters, the way that the characters express themselves. I was working with the wonderful art team to uh, decide what expressions that they show on their faces and how their animations should look and things of that nature. And it's, kind of crafting all the different ways that the story is told to you while a writer or an author or something like that is directly just writing. Whereas the narrative design part comes from the way that the story is told from all angles in a holistic view. And one of the things I like about how you went about writing this story was the person on the other end of the cell phone is Sam, the main character's girlfriend. What is the gender of the main character? So we never really specifically say in the game because it's not necessarily what, uh, like kind of the purpose of making this choice, but the the like myself, the main character of the game is non-binary. They are a non-binary woman. Non-binary woman. I'm a non-binary man. A part of that was for me, and I brought this to the team uh, when we first started talking about the game. Was just um, me beginning to realize that that was what I was, and wanting to write about it in a story, but also wanting to write a story that um, could. Uh, be, could represent some of the experiences that the women on my team would have as well and kind of co- trying to combine those experiences into like a specific character and I think uh, everyone was kind of on board with that which was something that I was really happy of at the very very beginning when we were creating the alpha of this game which was a, we had a little less defined before we just like haven't had it created but uh, like the full fledged character and what their background is but when we start to talk about it we were all on board for this particular thing and what that would mean for the character and what that would mean for the rest of the game as well. We just wanted to make the main character as well as everyone else in the game representative of who the team was and so that we could kind of see a little bit of ourselves in all of these characters. And what does that mean for the main character and how does that express itself? Because when I was playing, I got the sense that it was likely a woman as the main character. And yet, as someone who identifies as a straight cis man, I had no issue inserting myself into the story. It was very easy to do so. Well, the interesting thing about the main character is that um, the player character in We Should Talk is can 
still be an analog for like anyone that wants to put themselves in that role, like, or rather they can represent anyone that wants to put themselves in that role because the, the, the general parts of the story is kind of ubiquitous. Like you're a person going to the bar, you might have some relationship troubles. You might have an ex, you might have some um, like flirty conversations, but it, the difference being like, when you see that character first, uh, the player might ask like, what is the gender of this character? It's not specifically stated. Part of why it's not specifically stated is that I think it's a good way to kind of help people put their selves into the character. That being said, I don't want to like erase the fact that they're not married because that's a really important part to who that person was as I was writing them. But the nature of their relationship with Sam without getting super spoilery uh, kind of hinges on the fact that like their, their gender identity, but also their sexuality is kind of fluid. Like, uh, you're the main player character dates both men and women and how Sam sees you kind of uh, is representative of how she feels about that. And the things that she might ask you in the game sometimes bring those things up and the way that the other characters in the game um, talk to you are also hinge on that, but she's a nine burning woman. She can still um, get the unwanted attention and grossness that can come with being a uh, femme in a bar, it's important to have like all those kinds of experiences available. And it allows for not only the character to exist in a certain way, but the way that the other characters in the game respond to her. It's interesting. I don't make it a habit of going to bars. I, I don't drink, but being in this bar, that's not the part of the game that made me uncomfortable. Everybody in the story was either very nice to chat with or very easy to avoid in my experience. That's part of, a long conversation with the team. So in the original alpha version of We Should Talk, um, I'd say that the bar patrons were a lot more confrontational or just not welcoming, or you wouldn't want to be around them. You wouldn't want, they were less characters and more ideas of experiences that you might have in a bar. You know, in the alpha version, there was an X character, completely different character, who just kind of badgered you to get back with him. And that, and that was the entire nature of that experience. Uh, the bartender was a little bit too much prying into your relationship. And the uh, stranger that you met was just gross. Um, and it's it kind of important because the first person you talk to in this game is Steph, the bartender. And kind of the role of what a bartender plays in a bar is to be welcoming and to make you want to be there and to make you want to feel comfortable in that space. And I wanted most of the characters or rather all of the characters to have some permutation of that happening. That might not be always be your experience with the game. Sometimes your experience based off your choices might lead some of the characters to be not great to be around, but everyone needed to have both moments where they are welcoming or you wouldn't want to be around them. And the crux of why that's important is because pretty much every time you pick up your phone to talk to Sam in that game, you're going to have, a conversation that probably becomes intense or probably becomes vulnerable and makes you vulnerable. And sometimes I think in real life, the powerful things and the nuance of how text messaging works is that eventually you and the person you're talking to are going to want to put the phone down for a second. Sometimes you'll say, Oh yeah, I'll be right back. Or, uh, Oh, I got to do this other thing. Uh, and sometimes you really do have to do that thing. Sometimes you just had a rough conversation and need to manufacture a break. And when you have that break, you have to see a face that doesn't also put you into that same type of vulnerable point, the same type of like intimacy that you were having in that other conversation. You're exploring what other things can be to you in this world. Yeah. And I want to talk about the interactions I had with Sam and how that made me feel. But first I want to ask about the game more broadly and its view of romance, which is present in the bar. It's present in the phone and the discussions with Sam. The website says that this game was designed to challenge traditional transactional romance in games. So what limitations have you observed in game romances to date that you were trying to break out of? Let me go into a little bit of the history of the game. So this game started in a class called Studio 2 at the NYU Game Center, where uh, the students come together, they all go to whiteboards, and a bunch of students write design challenges on that whiteboard. And um, 
everyone in a class looks at all these design challenges and then comes together as a team based off of the groups of people that decided they were to tackle that specific challenge. And the We Should Talk team all came around the someone wrote how to make a game that shows a romance that is not transactional. And that later evolved into a game that challenges the transactional nature of a romance, which is a little bit different. Um, and the reason that we wanted to go for that is the, the beautiful way that the team makeup came to be is that um, about half of the team members play um, a lot of traditional romance games, Otome games, like visual novels and stuff like that. And the others don't didn't really care for a lot of those traditional games. And the reason being that um, the one side likes kind of getting to understand and learn characters in that type of format, while the others feel like it's all about getting the boyfriend or girlfriend points and then seeing the character that you like. So choosing that you're going to go on that route and then saying or doing the right thing to get the right ending, to get the good ending, to get the true ending. And uh, we, as a team, don't really like the fact that that's the general representation of relationships in games. Like, games are not, I mean, relationships are not as clear-cut. So when we were setting for We Should Talk, we wanted to kind of include some of the gross parts or the uncomfortable parts or the mean parts, the parts where, like, you don't get immediate feedback on whether or not you said the right thing or the wrong thing or the right or the thing that you're trying to uh, express. You know, with We Should Talk specifically, like when you make a choice, the the player might respond. I mean, the character might respond. You might even get like a little cute reaction animation out of them. But like, you don't really know the long-term effects of what's going on and not in a... I didn't talk to my dog, so now the world ends, like in some games. But in the fact that sometimes in relationships, someone internalizes a statement that's said to them, and the effects of that come much, much later. The game is not about having a good route or bad route. It really tries to have a holistic view of what you're saying to people and decide how would this character progress in their relationships based off of the things, the person that they were in this 20-minute night. So it's not just the decision you're making right now is going to have an immediate effect. It's that this decision will have consequences and you might not see it until later in the evening when it comes back up. Exactly. What you're doing is deciding how this conversation goes, but you don't, and you won't immediately know what that means for the rest of your conversations for later. You won't know what in the video gamey part of it, which I like is that you don't just like video games. You say a thing and then you say the right amount of things or say the things in a certain order. And then you unlock another conversation that, um, which is why it's so fun to talk to other people that have played it one or two times because it's almost universally a different experience because that's kind of how conversations are in relationships, both intimate and, um, platonic. You say things in a certain way and then your mind remembers something that brings something up. It's not going to be the same for everybody, which is kind of the fun part for me when it comes to, um, I've been watching a lot of streams of it, uh, because I really like watching people play the game, particularly with a crowd. And while, you know, sometimes I'm seeing people get the same endings, but uh, the conversations that are happening within the chat of other people playing the game are always so interesting because they find a conversation or a bit of story that they never knew about the characters that kind of encourages them to play it over and over again. And the nature of relationships is that you say a thing and people react to it or people internalize it. And you always wonder, what if I said something else? What if I just tweaked? What if I said we instead of you? And that's kind of the whole concept of the game. The idea that relationships are both like enduring, but can be fragile. Conversation is very nuanced in what you're saying. And all that comes down to how, uh, how intimate you can be within those conversations, within those relationships. So the immediate response isn't necessarily true to how relationships work, which is what we were trying to kind of build, which is also why part of why it's a shorter experience. It's, it's much easier, or rather, it's much more interesting to me to convey that in a little bite-sized 20-minute, this is how what you're saying does affects this relationship in this time period with these people. Let's see if 
it changes if you do it again. In hearing you describe this, I am starting to realize that traditional video games have conditioned me to play a certain way, like Dead or Alive Extreme Beach Volleyball. Those aren't girlfriends, they're virtual pets. You treat them right and they do well by you. Uh, Mass Effect, you can choose who to romance almost without condition, as long as, as you said, you make the right decisions. And so playing We Should Talk, I interacted with Sam subconsciously wanting to get the good ending. I wanted her to be happy. I wanted the relationship to blossom, even though in real life, that might not be what I would do in that circumstance. But that is what traditional video games have taught me to do. And now I'm going to wonder, well, what do those other eight endings look like? Yeah, and I think I think that's what I kind of expect of a lot of players. So I think there's a couple of types of way to play this game when you first interact with it. I think there's a lot of people that are also have that same conditioning. I think if I were to encounter this game, having not played it or known about it, I'd probably play the same way. Where like, what is the good ending that I'm trying to get? And then there's other players that are like, how would I respond to these questions? And there's other people that want to burn everything down. And the game allows for all of that. And I want it to allow for all of that. I want you to play this game how you want to play it, even though I have my own personal intentions with it. It's because of that nature that uh, seeing the breadth of choices is kind of important because almost universally when I was watching those streams that I was mentioning, people were like, okay, I'm trying to get the good ending. Let's get, let's marry Sam, blah, 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 whatever people want to expect out of a traditional like romance game. And the reactions that they get to the other choices are often, I feel like this is what I would really say, but that not might not lead to the, uh, the answer that I want, which kind of leaves them often finishing that playthrough because it's short. They think, I think I can go again. Let me let me feel more like me this time. Let me choose my own route. And I I hope that when players play this game or people play this game, that type of thing is what happens more. Not only do you I want this game to like encourage people to you know, think more about the words that they're choosing in conversation and in dialogue in real life, but like really look back at how they experience games in general and how they experience the choices that they make in games and that they could you could want a little more in how you're expressing yourself in a game um so that you don't make yourself think that it is limited to what has pr- preceded it mariel bokor at the website thirdcoastreview.com had a very positive and nuanced review of this game and the headline is we should talk as a game that could improve your real life relationships so you were talking about encouraging players to think more non-binarily about the decisions they can make in games is this also an empathy game where it may have some spillover into real life i i hesitate to call it an empathy game only because there is a lot of conversation of what that means. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it myself, but I do think it is a game that I want people to take lessons from in their real relationships. That was a major goal for this game. One of the like extreme design goals that the team all agreed on is that we wanted this to be a game that's like playable by lots of people, like a person that has never picked up a game before we would want them to be able to experience this and kind of want to, Part of, that's part of why it's short. That's part of why the uh, the game starts with a very, very clear route for a tutorial. Um, but it's also because we want people to be able to look at this and like really think about how they respond to people in their own lives and see the kind of cute, funny, or intense ways that their actions affect others. And it's not really a thing that we allow for in games without servicing a, a different, greater plot. You know. In Mass Effect, you are talking to people, romancing some, but you're also saving the universe, and the other parts are optional. And, and that's that's par for the course with a larger game. I'm not saying that Mass Effect is bad for that, but we wanted this particular one to be for all those other people, in addition to the people that play the Mass Effects, the people like me that you know play other smaller narrative games, that to see the different ways that I can relate to this particular one. The ones, the ways that I feel like, oh, that's why my last ex-girlfriend didn't like what I said there. That might have been a jerky thing to say, to put it that way. Well, it's nice to have this little little relationship playground. That's a thing that I've called it before in We Should Talk, where I can kind of like experiment in ways to respond to different 
social scenarios and see how those words are really affecting it. No, that's great. The game is an opportunity to practice a relationship. And I think that maybe just like in the game, sometimes in real life, maybe I'm trying to get the good ending. And just like how I played the game, the main character, me, was too accommodating and allowed negative behavior to enter their life when they could have just said, hey, look, I'm going to walk away from this. And that's not necessarily a bad ending, walking away from an abusive situation. And that's that's exactly what... Like I'm glad that that's what you took out of it. That's the that's the experience because you know the end. There, there. I mean, it's not much of a spoiler to say there are endings where you and Sam, you know, go on to do other things in life as a couple. But like that might not be your happy ending. That might not be your good ending. For me as an individual, if I were to play this game, that would not be a good uh, ending for me. That I wouldn't. I don't think I would want to be with Sam. I think I would want a nice. I was going to spoil another ending just there. I think I want, (laughs) I think I just want something different out of that relationship. And that is fine. The game never tells you that you're doing the wrong thing. The game never says this is bad. It may say that um, this player, this character doesn't like the way you're talking to them or this character isn't prepared for what you're bringing to them right now, or you're surprising them, but it's not meant to give you, say that you are bad or good or anything like that. It's you, the ending you get is just representative of who you feel this person needs to be. And there's nothing wrong with going through that, those conversations and thinking, I don't want to be here or going through those conversations and saying, I want to give you everything. But it is important to note that like the game allows for both very positive and nurturing and growing relationships and also toxic relationships that all the characters kind of can slip into and they all have some toxic behaviors that can be addressed or spoken about or talked about within the game. But it's also meant to show that like you can't, you don't have to like be acquiescent to the whim of everybody that's here, which is kind of one of the downsides and the critiques that I have of like traditional romance games. The goal in those traditional romance games is to do what the character wants you to do. Give them the thing that they like so that you get the plus three instead of plus three, two points that you connect to them. Talk to them the way that they want to be talked to all the time. And the downside of that is that what that does is enable whatever behavior they, they're exhibiting. It just, you're giving them exactly what they want. Sometimes what they want isn't good for you. And we should talk. We kind of allow you to, you know, address that and sometimes tackle that. It's really interesting that you wrote a primary romantic interest that you yourself would not want to be with. Now, given who you are and the kind of game this is, that's not surprising. But in the larger context of the video game industry, so many video games are about wish fulfillment. I mean, we've heard stories about Lara Croft being a woman because the main characters want to look at somebody's rear as they're running around all day. And so to have a character like Sam who, yeah, we wrote her and we wouldn't choose to be with her. That's very divergent from mainstream gaming in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think the part of why that was uh, not a tough decision for me as I was like creating a lot of who these characters become is because I, I do see myself in other parts of the game. I think um, naturally, because this is a fairly personal game for all the team members, there, there are bits of personal experiences that all of us have had in many of the characters I kind of get, I get the, I get to have my cake and eat it too. I get to put myself in parts of the game, whether it's uh, having, you know, Dante, one of the other characters, have this very specific weird interest in like experimental theater that I like to watch, or where uh, Carol Mertz, one of the other developers on team, makes poop jokes. I also make poop jokes, but Carol Mertz wrote this, wrote this like really good poop joke in one of the conversations. Um, And that's like a little bit of putting ourselves into it. So I don't need to see, myself doing the things that the characters are doing because it's not this is me telling a story at the end of the day even though there are uh bits of me in it and as a result i don't have to be a part of every experience for example there is a conversation in the game that is uh one of the conversations that the stranger character can have with you it just is an experience of someone picking trying to pick you up at the bar whether you want it or not and part of the ways of that kind con- that the conversation can go is like directly based off of experiences that are not mine because I, and I did, and I don't want to see myself in those experiences. Those are not my experiences to really talk about or have, which is why I spoke to other team members and got their input about how 
it would be right, it would be right on that conversation. And early versions of the conversation that I'm talking about, where you're you're pushing away or trying to get rid of an annoying person that is trying to uh, flirt with you or pick you up at the bar, was that early version of that conversation? Well, it weren't great. Like there weren't the best quality writing because I because it was before I started to get the input when I first had the original draft. It just wasn't a believable experience because it's an experience that I have no idea the inner workings of what a person who is experiencing that is thinking when they're trying to respond. And a lot of what we should talk is like centered on is the various thoughts that can go in through your mind of how do I respond to this particular thing and how the various ways I can say it. But when I have a limited experience in that, it's not my place to tell that story alone. I need to get help, uh, which is what ended up happening. And it, and I think the conversation is better for it because I don't need to, I think a problem that can happen in various art forms is the need to be the art holistically as an artist. The conversation of do should you separate your art from your artist comes up often, but not often enough in the context of a lot of artists are telling different variations in different parts of their story and making themselves in all those variations. I think, uh, Judd Apatow uh, puts a lot of himself in a lot of the main characters of his movies. And I think like Kevin Smith does the same thing and that's fine for the stories that they're telling. But with we should talk, that wasn't the story that I think we needed to tell. Um, I didn't need to put myself in every aspect of it because I really like the characters that, that we created and I wanted them to have stories. We often use the advice, write what you know, as an excuse to limit ourselves to writing only what we already know. When really what the advice means is, if you're going to write something, go learn about it and expand your horizons and go outside your comfort zone so that you're not writing about something you're in, uninformed about. And it sounds like that's what your team did. You brought all your discrete experiences together, filling in each other's gaps to create this wonderful narrative. Writing is a beautiful experience in learning, both about yourself and what you can expand your mind on. And I think particularly what we should talk about with everything that I do, I truly try to make it so that I, I'm i learning as I'm going um, and the characters kind of grow as a result. You know, popping the stack a bit here, it was very interesting to hear you say that you were hesitant to use the phrase empathy game, because to be honest, so was I. I did an entire panel at PAX East 2015 about empathy games. This was only a year and a half after Gone Home had been released. And since then, there have been so many wonderful indie narrative-based games like Life is Strange or Firewatch. And some of those are, main, uh, are big budget, but at the same time, the idea that you're putting yourself in other people's shoes is no longer this niche that is the exclusive realm of indie games. It almost seems like it's become pervasive and no longer needs its own label. And so I wasn't, to be honest, sure if this game qualifies as an empathy game because I don't know what an empathy game is anymore. Five years ago I did, now I don't. Yeah, I think it's the thing that muddles a lot of like genre specifications in games in general, where like to go on a mild tangent, like most big budget games are RPGs, but you're not going to sit down and watch someone play Madden and call that an RPG. You're going to call it a football sports game simulator, but it, there's so many RPG elements of it that it's like, it's clearly an RPG. There's stats, but, uh, and that's the same for what was originally, uh, referred to as empathy games, where I think the part of the goal of indie games for a lot of people is to, experiment in a mechanic or an experience that isn't getting a large budget. So you make do with what you have. And sometimes when that becomes clearly a good thing and like great art comes out of it, not necessarily successful art, but good art, critically acclaimed art, uh, you start seeing it in other places and people take their interpretations of it. And that's one of my personal like goals with we should talk that someone sees this game plays it and thinks oh this is cool i wonder what i could do with this or oh i think i could do this better uh because that's where the most interesting parts of game design come from i think i think some of the best games movies art in general comes from someone seeing a thing and thinking i could do this better or 
I want to do this my way, which is part of what I was explaining before with our interpretation of a romance game. Like we wanted to do this kind of our way. So with the empathy conversation, I think it's a much larger conversation as if someone uses this game for that purpose, great. Um, I don't want to explicitly say that that was the entire goal of us when we were making this, because at the end of the day, our truest, most original goal for this game was creating a thing in three months that we could make to, to pass a class that we were taking. And all of the other goals that I mentioned were also there. But I think intentions with empathy games become weird to me because it, 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 it can definitely um, teeter the line of like beautiful, impactful and pretentious at any given moment, which is one of the reasons why um, has, I don't really want to refer to it as such, but if other people did, I wouldn't have a problem with that either. We briefly talked about budget for a moment there. I want to talk about this game's Kickstarter, which full disclosure, I backed for $7 to get a Steam key. And then I also paid another $7 to Nintendo to get the game on the Switch. So the Kickstarter had a goal of $5,000. It raised a little over $13,000. And in terms of Kickstarters, where you back a game and if they stick to their schedule, you get it two years later. If they don't, you get it five years later. That's what happened to me with Kentucky Route Zero. I got it eight hour, eight years after I backed it. Yeah. This game, the campaign closed June 11th. The game released July 16th. So whereas most Kickstarters use those funds to fund a game's development, can you talk about how this campaign's was different from that model? Sure. Um, so I think that COVID-19 and the worldwide pandemic that we're current in, currently in affected a lot of indies in many different ways. So by the time we hit, let's say around March of this year, February or March of this year, I'd say that we should talk like full-time development was mostly done. There were definitely still, we were definitely still working on it, but like the game could be completed from start to finish. A big goal with uh, the team this year was the event that like in the event circuit where we, we listed all the events that all the people of the team could go to, to then show off the game. And that was going to be the way that we really spoke the word of the game into the world. And uh, we're able, would be able to like pay ourselves to do that. And because that wasn't really possible, tons of event cancellations, uh, programs that we are part of no longer existing things of that nature. We needed to find a new way to um, not only like market the game, but like to kind of pay for those funds because they were all going to be coming out of like pocket for uh, plane tickets and stuff anyway, uh, beforehand, plane tickets and uh, hotels and such. So if we, since we couldn't, we were no longer able to get the world, the game out to the world in person, we, we needed to take a more digital route and we felt that like Kickstarter was a good way to help fund other parts of the experience that we wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, thanks to Kickstarter, we were able to get, you know, we should talk merchandise uh, and be able to like get that to the world. We were able to get so many, like bring it to the face of so many different people that we wouldn't have because uh, COVID destroyed all of our other plans. So that was kind of the main thing with Kickstarter for us. We wanted to we wanted to get as many people to like see we should talk, see if people believed in the goals that we were trying to get, believed in the experience, and helped get that game that extra push towards release. Because for a lot of indies, that that event circuit that I was mentioning is how your game gets known. You know, full disclosure, most indies don't make a lot of money for their games. Like we, there's not a lot of like extremely successful indie games out there. A lot of people are getting by um, or, and a lot of, and most people making indie games aren't, are making less than they put into the game. Uh, so when they lose the biggest bits of marketing that they would have, we were going to have presences at a series of events this year. Like I think I was going to be traveling once or twice every month through August, showing this game or doing talks about this game. And when that couldn't happen anymore, that would have been a big blow to us. So I can't even imagine how big of it a blow it was to like other games in similar scenarios. It was really trying to kind of make up for 
that and allowing us to find other ways to bring it to the uh, we should talk to the world. And one of the stretch goals for this Kickstarter, uh, several of them were various online events like retrospectives and live streams. I see your name on one of them, a We Should Talk seminar, you and Carol. Is that going to be happening anytime soon? So uh, those have happened already, but I can provide you with the links and we can put them in the description below. We did um, a lot of what I wanted to do at these events. I didn't get the chance to. Many of the events were canceled. I was going to do several talks, um, seminars and such. And we kind of just took that into our own hands and put in a, a, a digital format, which is another thing that the Kickstarter did help because, you know, the, a lot of the events that I was going to go to, I was going to be paid to go out there and that was going to make it possible for me to do so. So we did a ton of seminars. We did some retrospective streams. We uh, did a you know before and after stream of showing what the alpha looked like versus what the current version of the game ended up being and kind of the journey. And we all were able to kind of do that and like kind of pay ourselves for that work as a result of those stretch goals. Awesome. So you talked about how this funding was used primarily for marketing. And you also, way back earlier, talked about how the game's branches can change when you patch the game. When I look at the metadata on my Switch copy of this game, it says it's at version 0.1. Does that mean it's still in development? For the most part, We Should Talk is completely like finished. When like small like bugs come up, we fix them. And that's to the extent of which it's still in development. I, there's like, for example, the Switch version, we've already submitted a patch for like a little bug that was found um, in that, that we're, that's going through certification. And I think that's really all that's referred to. For the most part, we should talk is done outside of if we find bugs, we're going to fix them. Uh, some of which being narrative bugs, some of which being code-based bugs, but it, we should talk for the most part, all things considered, is done. Now, do I write my own, like, we should talk fan fiction on the side? Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, that's not going to make it into the game, maybe. Probably not. Okay. Because if you were still developing the game, the one request I would have is when I'm spinning the sentences, sometimes I want to choose the option that's above the current one. So I push up, but it spins the wheel up and moves the bottom one to be active. So it's the opposite of what I expect. I. It's so funny that you mentioned that. That was a very long-tested decision between us. Uh <laughs> And what we learned uh, from various amounts of playtesting, various amounts of like discussion with mentors and advisors for the game is that uh, uh, it's kind of a 50-50 shot whether or not people are going to be comfortable with the way that we're deciding. Because some people see you holding a thing and lifting it up to go to the further, for the below option. And some see you doing thing the video game, I want to go up, so I'm pressing up kind of like the old inverted controls versus non-inverted controls thing. So it's a very interesting feedback. We might, uh, I'm going to take that into consideration and who knows what uh, more uh, accessibility options we will be able to add in the future. We, we definitely want to be able to do that type of thing. Like if there's like clear accessibility options that we should uh, have in the game, we definitely want to put that in there. Because in the game, the sentence spinner most often appears in the context of the phone you're using to talk to Sam. And in the, that context, it makes sense because a phone is swipe up to move things up. But in my case, I'm not playing on a mobile device. This game isn't being ported to mobile devices, so I'm not using a touch interface. And that's, I think, what threw me. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned was that indie games are born from seeing other games and saying, I want to do my own version of that. I want to do my own take on that. That's one way to seek inspiration. One of the games I was reminded of when I was playing this was Emily is Away, which I have interviewed the developer for on my other podcast, IndieCider. So I'm not asking you to critique other games, but for people who did play We Should Talk and enjoyed it, what other games similar to it would you recommend, if any? It's funny you should mention Emily is Away. Kyle Seeley, the developer of Emily is Away, was uh, a great supporter of We Should Talk when, you know, we were coming up with it. Uh, so, like I mentioned before, it's a game that debuted at the NYU Game Center at the end of year, like the Game Center Student Showcase. He was there, and he played it, and he walked up to us and said, uh, when's it coming out? When can I buy this? And afterwards, you know, we, we were able to create a good dialogue and have a couple, like, conversations with them that helped kind of influence some of the decisions that we were making. So Emily is way is a great one. It's also one that like definitely expired us the way that they kind of simulate 
AIM texting and AOL instant messaging is part of like an inspiration for us for sure. I think as an individual myself, I, we also, and myself also like a one night stand is a great short form game. I'm really a fan of these smaller, uh, like shorter bite sized experiences for, for narrative games that I feel like they have a different kind of impact than having to remember details that you would in a book. It's a, it's a different type of way to experience that. So one night stand is a great example of that. I think both, both Emily as always are, are good examples of that. I think Florence is a good example of that. Um, which does, I think successfully it expresses emotion without words in a very beautiful way. And it's tone through texting. That's it's another thing that we should talk, tries to, um, accomplish that I think Florence does pretty well. And I, this isn't like a, um, this is a very different answer than the rest of them. Um, I really like the Telltale Batman series because a big part of me still likes comic books. And one more, there's a great, uh, FMV game that I played the summer that we were developing. We should talk didn't really influence it, but I was like trying to experience all of the different types of narrative games that kind of help influence me as a just writer in general. And it was called Late Shift, which is a great FMV action thriller game that you can find on, I think, all the things. Excellent. I'll include links to those in the show notes. And um, I love that you mentioned Florence because I just played that myself earlier this year and loved it. One of the producers on that game was Kamina Vincent, who was formerly of Tin Man Game Studios. They made The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, as well as To Be or Not To Be, the choose-your-own-adventure game based on Hamlet, both of which are awesome and which I interviewed her for on my other podcast, IndieCider. And you mentioned both Emily's are away, but I believe that there is a third one coming out soon. I saw it at PAX East in the Indie Mega Booth this year. Yeah, I do believe that there's another one coming out that like tackles, I think, Facebook, something like that. That It, it sounds amazing, <laughs> and, I, and I'm excited for it. Yeah, I'm looking at the Steam page right now. It says release date soonish, and you are correct. In fact, I didn't get a chance to play it at PAX. I only saw that it was there, and it has this mock interface of a thing it calls Face Nook. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Cool. So we've been talking a lot about We Should Talk, naturally. That's right in the name of the game. But I want to spend a few more minutes before we hang up on some other topics. Uh, the Kickstarter for We Should Talk is based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Another thing that's also based out of St. Louis, Missouri is the Pixel Pop Festival, which debuted there in 2014, joining the ranks of such diverse game conferences as Different Games, Indiecade, Gamer X. What is your role with Pixel Pop Festival? So uh, for Pixel Pop Festival, I am the sessions manager. And what that means is that I'm the general liaison between the speakers, panelists, and presenters. Um, and Pixelpop as an organization. I do the general outreach for them. Uh, I kind of let them know what is a, what, what's going on and what they might need. I try to attend to during the conference. And I, that also doubles as the MC for the event when it's live. Now, I didn't realize what a burgeoning scene of indie game development St. Louis has. It has hosted the 14th largest global game jam in 2017, I believe. But if I understand correctly, you're in Brooklyn. So how did you get involved with a St. Louis event? That is a wonderful... Like I mentioned before, uh, the We Should Talk team all met together at NYU uh, at their MFA for game design. And one of the developers on We Should Talk, uh, Carol Mertz, is also the executive director of Pixelpop Festival. And We've worked on several projects together at this point. And in a lot of our, like, she's a good friend. In a lot of our private conversations, I expressed my want to, um, my desire to go into game event organizing. Because before I was in uh, the game industry and when I was in college, I did a lot of organizing of events that, uh, particularly catered to, educated, and supported uh, Black communities in New York, the greater New York metro area. And I wanted to do the same type of work in games. Um, and at that particular moment, she was also looking for a session manager for Pixelpop and thought that I'd be a good person for that role. Um, 
So we met in Brooklyn, <laughs> but uh, and I I didn't have really any much hesitation. I said. Like, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more and like to talk to the other picks about team members and see like what this is and how I could fit in there. And, you know, I, I everyone on the team seemed to get it. Um, like the idea of kind of fostering a space where people from different backgrounds and people with different experiences can come and create new and interesting ways of play. And, you know, my like individual goal as becoming a greater event organizer was fairly much pretty much the same as the one I the event organizer I was before where I just want to make sure that like black people had opportunities to both learn and grow in whatever space that I'm in. And so because Pixel Pop I feel was already doing a great job at that and was a uh, for not only black people for but for marginalized groups in general, I was happy to like come and join that Effort. Oh, that's great. You wear so many hats. You're a narrative designer and a session manager. That's a lot of work for one person. It, it tends to be. I I like to fill my plate with, I have a lot of things that I want to do in the world. Like I am a narrative designer. I'd like to write a book. I'd like to write a movie. I'd like to write a TV show. I'd like to write a play. I'd like to just write on all mediums. I'd like to organize different events for things. I'd like to start organizations that then like help young black kids get into the games industry. Those, these are all large goals that I want to work towards. And a lot of these other things are smaller active things that I can do to start touching at those goals and also like expanding what my capability of achieving those goals later. That's great. A lot of people just are drawn to the nearest shiny thing, but it sounds like you have a plan. You will do this to acquire these skills that next you can do that. That's very self-aware and more than I think most people have. Yeah, it was actually my um, my motivation to going to NYU, uh, going to game design school. I mean, before I was in the industry or going to game design school, I was working as a like an administrator at a community college. Like I, I had virtually like very little like game industry experience. Um, but I did organize a ton of events and those events, I did a lot of like role-playing experiences uh, and it's a little bit timely now, but I, I did a lot of role-playing experiences about what to do as like a black person when you're stopped by police officers. And I didn't recognize them as role-playing experiences at the time. I didn't understand that the concept of play could be extended to those things. Um, but you know, after doing research and finding out about NYU, I learned that that was, that was definitely a thing. That was game design that I was doing. It wasn't the type that I wanted to continue doing all the rest of my life. I wanted, like I mentioned before, I wanted to, I want to write on all mediums, but games are the ones that I care about the most. So I decided I am older than someone immediately coming out of college. I'm going to go to this school with these particular goals set in mind. I'm going to choose NYU specifically because I can, I have done research on the professors there. They're all people that have like various levels of experience, but they're all like kind of brilliant. I can, I want to learn from them specifically, not necessarily just in the classroom, but I want to be able to talk to them, learn about the industry that I'm kind of just shoving myself into. I want to be able to use the connections of going to a, a university to have some stability if game design doesn't work for me. You know, if I have a, if I couldn't get like writing work or reach a talk immediately after NYU, I still have a terminal degree. Maybe I could teach somewhere. I choose NYU specifically because it has a great games design program, but the program is also in the Tisch department. The Tisch also has a screenwriting department. I can uh, increase my screenwriting skills, which will then help me as a, as a narrative designer and writer in the games industry, while also giving me skills that I can use to attain my other goals that I want to have. Everything's very important because it, it's, it all started with NYU because that was a uh, important thing to plan for because of how expensive graduate school is. You know, if I was going to put down all that money for an education, I wanted to make sure that I had as much of it in my hands as possible to achieve my later goals. And I think I'm taking that philosophy with everything else I do in life as well. That's brilliant. I've been to grad school. I agree. It's very expensive. And I didn't realize, though, that the NYU Game Center is part of the Tisch School. That has a legendary uh, reputation in the performing arts world. That's very impressive. Yeah, what attracted me to that not only was its uh, you know reputation in the other programs, but the idea that at it, like at NYU they are coming from this at, 
from the perspective that this is an arts degree. So be as experimental as you want to be, and you can do that. And as a result, I was able to do that. They didn't bat an eye when I made like three games about poop. And I, because I wanted to make things about poop. That was funny to me, so I just did it. So I'll make my games about poop, and then I'll make my games about gentrification, and then I'll make my game about emotional dependency. And all those could exist in that same place, which is a big part of that for me. Well, that is an impressive litmus test. Will this school let me make games about poop? Yes or no? <laughs> exactly. So one more question about Pixel Pop Festival. Like so many events, it's been affected by the pandemic, and I'm speaking to that personally. Today, the day that you and I are recording, I was supposed to be flying from one conference in Philadelphia to another conference in Kansas City. Instead, I'm spending the entire week in Montana on Zoom. So I can appreciate that a lot of transformations are necessary. A lot of decisions need to be made for Pixel Pop Festival. Those decisions are still being made, but the event is going ahead for 2020 and it will be held, correct? Yes. So we've already announced uh, the dates, which are not on the top of my mind, but um, the submissions have gone out for Pixel Pop Festival. It's definitely existing in a digital format. Uh, I'm still figuring out what exactly that means. Um, But yeah, it's still moving forward because... I think personally that it's not more important, but ever, but it's extremely important to maintain the communities that are underserved. And, you know, like you said, pixel pop is about, uh, is in St. Louis, which is, has a budding uh, design game design and game industry, uh, like both indie experimental student and, you know, st- starting some companies as well. And I, I don't, I, they deserve to not be forgotten about because of this. It, they do they kind of deserve to continue to exist in some respect and be able to show off their work, show the information and knowledge that they've gathered about games and bring it out to the world. So we still want to be able to provide that for people and kind of help maintain that space, even in times when it's hard to see exactly how that's going to work out. That's awesome. People who want to find out more about Pixel Pot Festival, which is being held September 12th and the 13th, Saturday and Sunday, can go to pixelpotfestival.com. And by the way, depending on where you Google, National Video Game Day is either July 8th or September 12th, the day of the festival. So that's just perfect timing. Perfect. I wasn't aware of that. That thing's pretty cool. <laughs> I wouldn't be aware of it either, except it's on my calendar. For some reason, I put it in there like 20 years ago as a recurring event. And I'm like, well, it must be true. It's such an important day. There's two of them. Right. There should be more days than that. All right. One last question before we go. You talked about all these different media that you want to perform in and to contribute to. Tell us about one of your projects, Saving the Day. Also, NYU. Man, NYU is a a constant in my current (laughs) life. Um, Clearly. I was in... I wanted to take a screenwriting class, and so I... I, it was a class called uh, Writing Across Mediums, I believe, where um, you go in. It was a very short class. I was the only game design student there and a bunch of like screenwriting students, uh, masters, and I think one undergraduate student. And they just said, you're going to come in here. You're going to pitch a you're going to pitch a movie or a pilot. 30 minutes or an hour doesn't matter, whatever you want to pitch. And you, we're just going to work through it. And we're going to make this we're going to make this a writer's room. We're going to have five people in here because that was the size of the class. And this is going to be your writer's room for the rest of the semester. And I wanted to tell a story, a a superhero story about a black superhero whose family's from Barbados who grew up in Flatbush or Crown Heights in Brooklyn, because that I, that was an example of me wanting to write a story kind of about me. uh, If I want, if I became a superhero and the struggles of being a person who wants to do good in the world and particularly a black superhero who wants to do good in the world while the gentrification is happening and you're being, your culture is being erased where you are. And as a result, your identity as a hero is becoming erased as well. People are caring about you less because you're not what's new. You're not the new juice store. You're the old mom and pop shop down the street. So I began writing this uh, story in that class and I actually haven't revisited the script maybe a year however it's something that i am asterisk asterisk continuously working on um because it's a project that i want to really like make a thing i don't know in what medium it it originated as a a 30 minute tv show pilot but uh, i 
I want to I want to make that a a real thing, and I'm kind of shopping around ideas of what it will become later. Down. That is awesome. I love how you have your hands in so many different projects, and you know, as soon as one is done, whether it's We Should Talk or a Pixel Pop Festival, you don't even have to wait to be over because you're already starting your next project. You're not letting any moss gather on your Rolling Stone. Yeah, I mean, I'm even working on some tabletop stuff that I just haven't announced yet. So, you know, it, it, you, when you're an artist, I feel like in all types of the word, when you're, when you're creating like content for any type of medium, the ideas just come. And so you, eventually you start writing some down and like, eventually I'm going to work on this. Eventually I'm going to work on this. I just happen to have a couple of those things already in the pipeline. Awesome. And once again, for those who want to keep abreast of all these many projects you're working on, where can they find you online? You can find me on twitter.com. Awesome. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. It was fun. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Thank you.